Hello everyone, welcome to SNIT. Studies in National and International Development is the longest running weekly interdisciplinary seminar series at Queen's University. Since 1983, SNIT has proudly hosted prominent Canadian and international scholars who bring fresh perspectives to issues of local, national, and global development. Please share our podcast with friends, family, and colleagues. We're glad to have you with us. Hello, everyone. Good afternoon. Uh, welcome to the second SNED uh, event of this term. On behalf of co-chairs, myself, Aicha Tomac, and Kerlin Prouse, I welcome you to the longest-running interdisciplinary seminars, seminar series at Queen's University. Since uh, 1983, SNED has proudly hosted prominent Canadian and international scholars and artists who bring fresh perspectives to issues of local, national, and global development. I will post other events that we plan for this term in the chat momentarily. Uh, SNED is hosted by Queen's University, which sits on the traditional territories of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy and Anishinaabeg Nation, and continues to benefit from ongoing colonization uh, in the forms of extractions of resources, knowledges, and practices of indigenous peoples, not only in Kataraki, uh, but around the Turtle Island. On behalf of SNED hosts who are settlers on this land, I would like to reiterate that SNED is committed to amplify the voices of scholars, activists, and artists who study, work, and create towards dismantling white supremacy and settler colonialism. Uh, today's SNED session is a collaboration with Dr. Rebecca Hall, who will be introducing our speakers and facilitating the session. Uh, Dr. Rebecca Hall is an assistant professor in global development studies at Queen's. Her research explores resource extraction, feminist political economy, decolonization and settler colonialism, social reproduction, northern development, gender-based violence, labor and employment standards. Her book, Refracted Economies, Diamond Mining and Social Reproduction in the North, is fresh out of the University of Toronto Press, and I cannot wait to read it. Uh, thank you, Rebecca, for collaborating with us with SNED and organizing this amazing panel. Thank you so much, Aicha, for that generous introduction and uh, for, for hosting us along with Carolyn today. Uh, so it's, it's really my pleasure to be here today uh, and to listen to the, the folks on this panel. Uh, the panel came about uh, because this summer Zoe Sweet told me about this wonderful play that she was working on, She Spreads. And uh, I won't say much about the play because you'll be hearing about it in just a second, but it deals with themes of gender and extraction and of capitalist commodification of lands and bodies. So we thought it would be great to bring the show here to Kingston and to Queens. And uh, as part of our organizing to that end, we began having broader discussions about social justice and the arts and how activism articulates through the performing arts. Uh, so we have some great artists here to talk about those themes today, and uh, I'll, I'll bring it to Zoe, who can introduce everyone. Oh, Zoe, I think you're on mute. Of course I am. Of course I am. <laughs> I just wanted to say thanks, Rebecca. Thank you so much for um, this initiative. And thank you everyone for joining us today um, uh, for this talk about arts and activism. I feel really very honored uh, to be joined by this incredible team of artists um, who 
are all theater practitioners in their own way. Um, and we'll get to talk to them about how social justice plays a role in the art that they make. Um, and so just quickly, I'd like to introduce you to each of our panelists. So first off, we have Claire Preuss. She's coming in from Calgary, Alberta, where she is the artistic director of Downstage Theatre, and she is the director and co-creator of She Spreads. Uh, Darwin Lyons is a Toronto-based theatre and film creator. She's a teacher and also the co-creator and my co-producer for She Spreads. Then we have Kemi King. She's a writer, director, performance artist, and divisor who's interested in how arts can shape social consciousness. Hi, Kemi. Mariah Horner is a Kingston-based theater artist and PhD student who's interested in abolitionist dramaturgies, site-specific live performance, care work, and collaborative creation. And then last but not least, we have Michael Wheeler, who is an assistant professor here at the Dance School at Queens of Drama and Music. And he is the Director of Artistic Research at Spiderweb Show Performance, which is Canada's first live digital performance company. And then finally, my name is Zoe Sweet, and I am a theatre creator and performer. I'm a producer and a teacher, and I'm an adjunct here at Queen's with the Dance School of Drama and Music as well. And I am also one of the co-creators of She Spreads, um, a play turned film um, about what we sacrifice in order to survive. And really the possibilities that lie beyond the edge. And so Rebecca gave good context about why we're here today. Um, she really found resonance, I think, in the themes of She Spreads and how they connect to some of the classes that she teaches, especially um, that regarding feminism and extraction. Um, and so we were meant to bring this play live to Kingston, to Calgary and to Toronto, um, and we had, the fortune of producing it right when Omicron hit. And so we quickly pivoted and, I know we're all sick of that word, pivoted and, um, and gathered together um, an amazing team of film people and also turned our own creative magic from theater to film and were able to create um, a piece of theater on film which will be released from February 23rd to 27th. So the art lives on. <laughs> So we're so excited to be still be able to talk to you about what will be coming to you soon. Um, so with that, I think we'll jump in and we'll have a little chat with everybody about how activism and social justice plays a role in the art that they create. Great, thanks Zoe. Um, so we'll start, Zoe and I will ask the panelists a few questions over the next hour and that should leave us with about uh, 15 or 20 minutes for questions from everyone at the end. Uh, so the first question is uh, just asking everyone to tell us a little bit about uh, the art that you're making, what you're working on right now. And I thought we could start uh, with the folks who've been involved with She Spreads and then uh, turn to the rest of the panelists. Claire, do you want to go ahead and start us off? Sure, sure. I mean, I, I'm on this project because of Darwin and Zoe. They uh, gathered myself and Nima Bickersteth to work on the project. It's, it's a long story about how we got to the actual devising of the piece, but um, it actually started from my memory with the word fair. 
Uh, we, we came to this word fair and, and the multiplication, the multiplicities of the meaning for us and began to work with that. And somehow, and I don't remember the link, to be honest, of how we got from fair to let's talk about the mining of bitumen up in northern Alberta. But that is, oh, and I'm coming from Mokinstis, which is Treaty 7 territory. Um, and there's the, these beautiful two rivers that, that can join uh, where the elbow river meets the bow. I live quite close to that. And I also like to call it where the prairies meet the mountains. So that's that's the land I'm, I'm on and I feel really lucky to be here. But it's a contentious um, time on this land, right? So north, just north of us is where this mining is happening. Uh, you can see the tailing ponds from space. It's a, it's a very... Um, it's a very it's a very tender topic here because so many people make their livings talk about survival what do we sacrifice to survive so many people in this area make their livings somehow related to oil um and and so many of us use it in fact the technology we're using now is filled with uh components that come from from oil extraction uh so as we're all deep in this in this uh in the oil sands in some form or another i i think you know whether we want to or not um, there is some type of participation to live in our society with, with the oil economy right now. So we started looking at that. And, and in my memory, we were also looking a lot at this notion of women's bodies and, and, uh, bodies, bodies. And I'll say that, you know, the, th the four of us gathered together are cis women. And so it did, it did come from, from that particular lived experience. Um, I think it can be relatable much further than that though. This notion that you're, that you're, that the commodification, that you can pick something apart and make money from bits and pieces of the identity of a human. Um, that is something that definitely we look deep into and we connected it a lot with this notion of both extracting the bitumen, um, like for instance, the, the overburden in bitumen extraction is the, the trees and the grass and the bush, and that is called overburden. In, in the extraction language, right? Or at least the, what we learned. And then um, and then also looking, Darwin's character plays uh, a butcher and we're looking at how, you know, pigs are cut up and parsed out and sold in bits and pieces. You get bacon or you get pork chops or whatever, right? So we were looking at those three. Uh, we also, um, throughout the development, I think this came a little later, later, Zoe, but Zoe's character is a bartender and a sex worker. And so that also looking at how um, the need for or, or the, the sensuality and the craving of, of connection through sensuality is another thing that has been commodified and 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 also now and that has been made illegal and, and, and that and that conundrum. So with that, shall I pass it on to one of the other two creators? Sure. I mean, I think that's that was a beautiful um, that was a, a beautiful overview of a lot of the themes underneath. And and I'll just add to that that, um, you know, I think um, something that I love about the play that we've created the sort of two things that um, that I think about a lot are are putting these characters are, are in these situations that they're not that aren't allowing them to live their best most fulfilled lives they're in these situations that really um, are hurting their their humanity and so what and so the play is asking you know what are the other possibilities what are the possibilities that we haven't explored in terms of how to allow people space to be to to flourish and be their best selves which is what i think a lot about in terms of activism like what are we what are we looking for we're we're looking for a world where everyone is able to or i'm looking for a world where everyone is able to flourish and live their authentic life 
And so I think that's that's sort of the question that we're asking with these characters. And um, it gets a little magical and it gets um, a little, you know, outside of what we see in naturalism. Um, and then the other thing that that I I think a lot about this show is that we we created the show four of us together. So one of our co-creators wasn't able to be here today, um, but we we really looked in terms of the making in like how how do we create a show different than the hierarchical structures that theater has often been part of, where there's like a director and a playwright and then a bunch of people playing out what they have created. How do we how do we work on a flattened model um, of leadership and say there are still roles? There's we still have a director and we and different team mem members, but how do we how do we come together within those roles and have it be um, like a, a flattened model of collaboration? And so that's something that I think is one of the reasons it took us um, quite a few years to create this piece because I think making sure that every voice in the yeah every voice in the room has equal say means that there's negotiation and that and I think that's beautiful and I think it's of note how long it takes. And I think the the one other small piece that I'll add to that is that not only in terms of the structure of our group of artists working together, were we interested in sort of decolonizing that model, but the actual structure of the play too, we were interested in not necessarily following a hero's journey with a very traditional sort of um, climax and denouement, but there was an interest in the cyclical nature and 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 the questions that are left at the end and not having everything tied up neatly in a bow. And so there was really, yeah, there was, there was an interest in exploring a different type of storytelling as well. One last little tiny thing I would just love to say is that um, yes, and to everything that was just said. And for me, I think part of what Darwin and Zoe were speaking to is this notion of an, an emotional journey rather than an intellectual journey. And, uh, and that for me is also just in the bigger, asp uh, like in my drive and desire to do social justice theater work or work that's looking at, at social issues that are really important and, and um, affect people's daily lives is that it's not just, a lot of us have heard some of this information before, but to have a visceral emotional journey with, with the stories uh, can have, I think, a different type of transformational effect. Great, thank you. Uh, I'll I'll pass the question to Kemi. Well, hi. <laughs> um, hi. I was just like taking notes and like listening to you guys. <laughs> uh, yeah, I haven't really like I read about the piece, but it's really really cool to hear um, you folks speak about it. So thank you. Um, my name is Kemi. Uh, I'm a theater practitioner and performance artist, which was said. Uh, right now, I'm really trying to hone in my practice and. So it's like theater of critical care um, and really it's so many things and I can't really explain it in a single line. So don't ask me to. <laughs> um, I'm, uh, and so, so currently things that I'm working on, my company, we're currently working on a zine and the theme is idolatry. And if you know anything about zines the, and like the current state in the theater, those two don't really mesh that well because zines are super anarchist and like anti-capitalist and like the way that the theater is right now it's all about making money and I think also it's hard to have the two of them together especially when like we are in the space of 
like the pandemic and the theaters are also going through so much. And so it's just like a really interesting mix and like trying to have the two of them together. Um, yeah, so the, the process for us so far has just been like a lot of different critiques, not only of like ourselves, but also the form and the questioning, just like how camp we can make the, the piece itself. Um, yeah, uh, that's that. Uh, another thing that I'm working on is this literary challenge. Um, it's you're supposed to write a play a day. Um, and if you think that's wild, you could check out Susan Laurie Parks who wrote a play every day. Um, and I, the people that I'm submitting to, I really don't know what exactly it is that they're looking for. Cause I don't know if they're looking for like a full play with like a proper um, like characters and plot. And I really don't do that. Um, I am kind of taking the Mora Parks route and writing just like what I can, um, especially since I've come to the realization that I'm not really like a playwright. Uh, I just really do like the performance art aspect is like creating scenarios and creating um, experiences. And sometimes they don't have character and they don't have plot. And I think that it's like a good exercise for me personally um, to just have space to write and explore. Yeah, end of thought. Thank you. Um, Mo, I'll pass the question on to you. I was also furiously taking notes. So nice to be in this space with all of you. And, and uh, I'm lucky to know most of you and have, have crossed with you before. So I'm grateful to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Uh, my name's Mo or Mariah Horner. Uh, I also am based in Cataraque, Kingston, uh, joining you from Skeleton Park. Uh, currently, I'm wearing a red bandana and clear square glasses frames and a black shirt. Um, I used to be, I'm a, I'm a theater artist here in Kingston and I'm also a PhD student as was, as was said. So I used to do a lot of work with a lot of organizations in Kingston with Mike and Spiderweb show, with Theater Kingston, with the Storefront Fringe Festival. Um, so when I think about myself as, an, as an, a person that is interested in, in arts and when what they can do for the, for the world, I think that my activism is really rooted um, very much in the local. I'm really interested in catalyzing experimental non-traditional performance space. I'm really interested in curating festivals that allow space for other artists to experiment inside of. Um, I'm really interested, similar to I think what, what Darwin and, and Kemi were getting at, which is I'm more interested, instead of thinking about shows that have the content about changing the world, I'm really interested in processes or value systems um, where I'm making work that can actually usher in that new change. So I'm super interested in a scholar and um, a, a, a disability artist uh, named Leah Lakshmi Piepsna Samarasinha, and she talks about prefigurative politics. So she talks about, and I, and I know Scott Rutherford's in the room, who was a person who in, introduced me to her work, but uh, she talks a lot about the theater as being a space where you can just pretend that the revolution has already happened. You can live as if the revolution has already happened when you're in the theater space. So similar to what Darwin was speaking about, like if we're interested in abolishing hierarchies, then why don't we do that in the theater space? Why don't we take 10 years to, to make a show? Why don't we really slow the process? Why don't we spread around the country and see what that does? Um, so my work in the PhD is kind of really trying to focus on these questions, which is instead of making plays that are about prison abolition, how can I make theater work that ushers in and contains the same values that prison abolition does? So some of those values are anti-hierarchy, 
or um, collectivity or abundance. So how can I make work within those frames uh, that may or may not be about prison abolition, but instead kind of do the work of, of abolition. So different than I think some of the artists in the room, I'm not actually making a lot of work right now. I'm, uh, I, I chose to go the route of the PhD because I really wanted to uh, zero in on, on what it was I thought I was doing with my own practice. And, and similar to Kemi, I really wanted to begin to articulate my, my own practice, my own, my own processes, how I want to work in collectives. Um, so the only other things I'll mention is um, I am working on a, a festival right now called the Shortwave Radio Theatre Festival, and it's with CFRC. And this is a, a radio theatre festival based in Kingston, uh, local playwrights, local directors, uh, local radio work. Uh, this, this festival came to be uh, during the pandemic when we couldn't actually rehearse and perform in person. So radio theater was kind of a great opportunity for us to still pay local artists, still invite a new kind of um, experimental form like radio theater, um, and still kind of, you know, curate that space for, for others to make their work. And then the only other thing I'll mention is I'm, I'm also the co-investigator on a book with uh, Professor Jen Stevenson uh, about participatory dramaturgies. So similar to, to being interested in abolitionary, abolitionist dramaturgies, I'm also interested in what participating in theater, what interactive theater, what immersive theater, what participatory theater does to um, us, does to the artists and does to the art. So super grateful to be here and uh, end of thought. Fantastic. And uh, finally, Michael, can you tell us a bit about what you're working on? Sure. <clears throat> it's nice to follow Mo in this. Mo, Mo's a bit um, humble, but just to say, I'm going to talk a lot about Spiderweb Show. And Mo had a lot to do with Spiderweb Show actually manifesting itself as an organization really early on before she did her PhD here at Queens. And so it's nice to follow Mo on that. So, um, yeah, I am an assistant professor at Queens, and I also am this. Um, director of artistic research at Spiderweb Show. And so fundamentally, I'm just trying to organize my life so that the research components of my job as a professor are plays that I make through Spiderweb Show. And so um, what I'm working on right now is actually something I worked on a really long time ago that I'm trying to put on in a new medium. So about 10 years ago, I directed a play called You Should Have Stayed Home. Uh, which was a one-person show about one person's experience at the G20 um, summit uh, in Toronto that involved um, the largest mass arrest in the history of Canada. 1,200 people were arrested and uh, put in a jail that was in the um, a film studio on Eastern Avenue in Toronto, if you know Toronto. And, uh, you know, actually just quite recently, the Toronto police uh, settled a um, class action where they admitted that they violated everyone's human rights and, and they said sorry and just to say i don't think people got a ton of money out of it but for a long time they kind of denied that it was wrong but you it's on the record now that everyone agrees that that was a terrible kind of miscarriage of charter rights violations uh, so we made a show that toured the country uh which was a really cool show because one of the things was anybody who wanted could join uh the production and actually come on stage and have a like participate in a on a water riot which was an event that happened in the, in the cage and so it was cool because we we toured this show but also every city that we went to we had these local people from the community who came and participated in the show for an evening to tell part of the story um and so i put that behind me about a decade ago and um when the pandemic started uh, I started like trying to figure out, oh, like what's my research gonna be at the university? And I was like, oh, we can't do anything. 
my research will be nothing. Uh, and then I started, so I got a VR headset and I started looking into VR and kind of understanding like what was compelling about VR right now. And I emerged with um, the kind of understanding that I think performance would be good in VR if it was just one person. Cause every time I saw like examples of two people acting in VR, it felt really forced and like weird, like Scooby-Doo or I don't know, it just doesn't work yet. Uh, but that I went and saw a bunch of stand-up comedy acts in VR and they worked really well. Like the one person could deliver text and people keep their mics open. You could hear the laughter and like that there was that dynamic of live performance existed. And so then I was like, oh, what show should I do in VR then given that? And then You Should Have Stayed Home really came back to me. He's like, that's a one person show. And also it's kind of built for interactivity. VR, people don't want to sit there for like an hour and not do anything. It's a very immersive medium where people want to break things and press every button and see what it does. And so um, right now I literally spent the morning in rehearsals for that. We got some shirk funding and some funding from the vision program at York University to essentially uh, put this play on and then, you know, write some peer reviewed papers on what do you need to know if you're thinking about taking a play and putting it into VR. Uh, and uh, the answer is a lot. <laughs> That's all I'll say. Thanks, Michael. Um, so some of you have answered this already, but if you have any additional thoughts, uh, please feel free to jump in or to respond to other folks offering. Um, so we're just curious about what your thoughts are on the relationship between activism and the arts. Where do you see it happening? Um, is it working? Is it not working? Just if you would like to expand on that thought. Does anybody want to, you can raise a hand if you like, or I'll just throw it out. Yeah, Claire, please. I mean, I feel so lucky. I, like, I think it's always been in my body. Uh, you know, I was, I was raised by, I mean, I was raised by hippie NDP uh, vegetarians in Southern Alberta. So, I mean, just right there, uh, there, there were some interesting dichotomies from very young, but I hadn't consciously thought of getting into theater um, as an activist practice. And then quite, you know, quite early on in my, in my, in my world, I mean, uh, I began interacting with artists who were also very much had an activist mind, or at least they might not identify as activists per se necessarily, but were definitely questioning the status quo of how theater was made, who was making the theater, what stories were being shared. Um, and so I think some of my earliest, you know, long-term collaborators, folks like Yvette Nolan and Donna Michelle St. Bernard, Nina Lee Aikino, like that's just to name a few. And then a little bit later on, Yolanda Bunnell. And, um, and I've had lots of experiences outside of that as well, but like, those folks taught me day by day and allowed me to be in those rooms where they were doing that. You know, Yvette Nolan is, you know, she was the artistic director of Native Earth Performing Arts um, but over a decade ago. And I mean, she was activating these practices within the office, within administration, within rehearsals in a really tangible way. So I had the opportunity really young, like in my twenties uh, to begin to learn from these incredible, incredible matriarchs really in so many ways. Um, so I think for me, it, it changed me by being a creator of of activist art it changed the way i saw the world it changed the values and i certainly feel that the shows that i was able to be a part of um you could see it people would go into the theater and within one night you know they would have a different perspective of the world around them so i'm not to speak i think there's lots of we can talk about lots of different mediums but because i've lived so much in theater i will say i have seen people um 
you know, change their perspective, change their behaviors as a result of one show one night that they saw. Maybe it's a, you know, it's a build of multiple, multiple things that have happened in their lives, but definitely that that can be a real, like a sense of act, activation of activism. I mean, you know, and it's what we do at Downstage. Like that's our, our, our little tagline is a theater that creates conversation around important social issues. Amazing. Um, Mariah, I'm curious about your work in abolitionism in particular lately and how you see those two sort of the arts and that work connecting. Yeah, definitely. You're, you're testing me as I just handed in one of my exams on this subject. But I mean, this is a it's a big question. And I think this question of stakes has been really haunting me a lot. Um, I mean, OK, so so many thoughts. So the first thought I would say is that this is what my PhD work is about, right? Which is how can theater be an arena to, or an imagination space for us to rehearse the world uh, without police and prisons? So, you know, if, if there's, if, you know, in classic arguments about defunding the police, there's also often a counter argument that comes up that's like, what would we do instead? Um, is theater a space with lower stakes that we could start imagining and actually just like living that world in the theater? But then I arrive at the complicated question, which is, isn't it nice to do that behind a fourth wall? Isn't that isn't that safe to do that behind a fourth wall? So I mean, there are a lot of opportunities, and there's also a lot of impossibilities with the with the relationship I think between activism and art. I think a lot about um, a really important article I read last year um, by Tuck and Yang called "Decolonization is Not a Metaphor," and I can post it in the chat after. I think it's available for free online, um, or folks at Queens can easily access it elsewhere. I could send it around too. Um, these scholars are writing about how decolonization, um, as a concept, has has large has sometimes been co-opted by like EDI initiatives, right? Like decolonization as like a as a as a methodology or as a as a as a perspective whereas you know the, these 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 scholars and a lot of other scholars and artists are like okay but decolonization is actually land back so can you really say you're decolonization you're decolonizing a performance if you're performing it on stolen land like that's that that's an extreme but i think that's the those are the questions that haunt me when i think about the relationship between these two things and um you know often it leads me down down a rabbit hole but i, I really think that 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 piece is something that, that I, I think about a lot. End of thought. Does anybody else have any thoughts on arts and activism that they'd like to share? Darwin or Kemi or Michael? I mean, sorry, go ahead, Kemi. Yeah. <laughs> I was gonna um, kind of respond back to Moen about decolonization. I was in a uh, lecture a couple of weeks ago about like decolonizing the body um, and with this professor in the UK and his name is Thomas Talwa Prasetto. Um, and just like a few points that I thought were really important and as someone was speaking it reminded me of these, but he spoke a lot about how decolonization, decolonization is not a return. Um, and like, because to think of it as a return because that's not it's an impossibility and it also continues the trope that modernity doesn't belong to the keepers of tradition um and then how we should be like examining the function and consequent of like right now using the past knowledge in order to have art and practices that are in, informed by the past and also including informed ethics 
Um, yeah, I just wanted to bring that up just because I was thinking about like if we are going to decolonize work or continue to try to decolonize work or even use that term um, in our arts practice, you just need to like, like actually like decolonize and actually like be doing the work of it and not just say that that is something that we are doing. Yeah. End of thought. Darwin, I thought I think you were going to speak. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think. Um, I mean, I I love I love what everyone has said so far, and I think that um, it's it's a really exciting conversation to be having. And and I think for me, like uh, there was a there was a time when I thought perhaps what I wanted to do was work more in sort of like the NGO space or in the policy space because that's that's a space where where it seems like tangible change can happen. And I think what um, what keeps me in the artistic space is that like similarly to what Claire was saying, I think art has the, a really magical ability to change minds. Like it's one thing if there's policies in place that there's like a large portion of people that don't agree with those policies. But I think for re like real change to occur, um, it's important that people that people understand why, like, why prison systems are inhumane, why the colonizational systems that exist in our world are really harmful. And so I think within art, art is, is in some ways a space where people can, can separate a little bit. They're not, they, they can feel sometimes like they can imagine in a way that isn't, that doesn't allow, create as a defensive response. And so that's something that I, I really, I'm in love with about activism and art is that it allows us to to think deeply in for the audience and have a and have that connection but it also allows the the team creating it to to action some of those things or to try to action some of those things sort of like what mo was saying is like how do we how do we practice the world that we want to have um so yeah i think i think that was just a big a big yes and to what to what everyone has said so far so interesting, though, I just want to uh, respond because what I'm hearing from you, Darwin, is that there's something about like that, that removal, that slight removal from policy, for instance, where we get to exist in the metaphor a little bit, where we, we get to exist in the dream world, I'm going to say, and yet that feels really that feels contradictory to me to what Mo was saying. I might be wrong or off base, but there, there does seem to be, or maybe there's a, like a, a crossroads there. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's what you were saying, Mo, about, about how exactly like in practice and yet what's the, what's the rub? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great, if I could just respond to that. I think for me, where the, where the separation in the dream happens is in the giving to the audience and where the practice happens is in the rehearsal room and the creation. Please, Claire. 
just a short example that was that we come back to a lot at Downstage. Um, part of our work, we do a, a mixture of types of work, and this was a community engaged piece. Uh, there were su supervised consumption services uh, that were uh, located in sort of a downtown neighborhood, like residential mixed neighborhood that was um, getting a lot of press. And we had folks come who are like lived, have lived experience with the supervised consumption services who came to Downstage and said, hey, we want to make a piece of theater about this. So we engaged in with multiple professional facilitators and a bunch of time we devised a work called Safe Site. And, um, and the folks who were involved, as I say, the majority of them had lived experience with um, yeah, with with uh, with the supervised consumption services, and wanted to tell those stories, and wanted to tell them in a in a space of theater. And people came to see the show. All sorts of people came to see the show. One of the people who came to see the show was a judge who often has the very people who made the show in front of him, and others who are who are part of this ongoing cyclical system of of uh, of the punitive system, I would call it, not the justice system. Um, and he came to us afterwards, like so emotional, saying, I'm so thankful I came to see the show. I, there's no way I could look at any of these people in the same way again. I've heard stories that would never have come to me otherwise. I, they have I, they have been humanized to me in a way that uh, has transformed how I will make judgments in the future. And and that kind of that kind of experience is just one of many, I think, of, of the type of thing where you go, OK, like that, that feels really tangible. Um, but I would also bring up in, in this notion of how we're creating this kind of justice work, two things that come up a lot at Downstage, obviously money for these kinds of extended things. How do we actually change the structures with, within which we make theater? The other one is care. Care of the artists sharing these stories, often re-traumatizing their bodies and, and being put into spaces where they are in front of people who don't have limit, similar lived experience to them, who are they're asking to kind of teach and, and, and share that emotional journey. So those are two things that come up a lot in how do we how do we care not only for audiences in this work, but how do we care for the people making the art? Because it's not the same kind of theater that was made even 30, 40 years ago in such a mass way. And and things like Canadian Actors Equity Association and stuff, they just don't honor like what the full the full breadth of what we need to do to care for folks. That just brings up an interesting thought for me, Claire, in terms of care for the performers. I know that there is a great shift in theater training institutions about students caring for themselves in the training and being real advocates for themselves in the training and how that's starting to, well, not starting to, how it's really rubbing against old systems of training. And there's a real... Um, yeah, I would say that there's a, there is a real uh, standoff happening between the institution that is trying to train people to be good actors and the care that the young actors have to take of themselves. Anyways, I feel like that just feeds into how we care for our performers. Thank you. Michael, do you want to say anything else or should we move on to our next question? It's okay, move on. I'm, I'm just <laughs> learning right now. Thank you. <laughs> I, oh, I, oh. Mm -hmm. yeah I just have one more thing to add I went once to this panel it was run through Canadian theater uh, CATR and it was Kevin Loring speaking who's the artistic director of uh, the indigenous department at the NAC and he it, this panel happened maybe last summer and he talked about you know the fact that he he walked into that position and then the pandemic happened so there wasn't really like he had a whole year of programming planned there was a full programming gamut that happened and in the panel talk he gave he asked this these questions where he was like 
is the need for me and my community right now to make a play? Maybe not. And he had this whole beautiful panel where he was like, maybe actually we'll reallocate those resources and like just send money or like just provide like labor or it was really this kind of like understanding of exactly all the things that like Darwin and Claire and Zoe and and Kemi and Mike are talking about which is like not just focusing on the content of what we're doing as the as the mechanism behind um making change and I think that's a great like I loved listening to to Kevin Lauren talk about that because I think it's like a really it's hum it's like quite humbling I think for someone to arrive into a leadership position and then to be like wait should I be using this leadership in this way or should I do it this way um, so I'm really grateful, I think, for this moment and, and leaders like Kevin Loring, who are like really digging deep and asking that question in like in unimaginable circumstances. I'm going to try to find that panel, too, and I can I can link it in the chat. Uh, end of thought. Thanks, Mo. That that brings us really nicely into uh, the last question that we have for you. And, and in this one, Zoe and I really wanted to think about social justice and, and commitments to activism in the everyday. The, um, the ways in which these commitments uh, might inform your process, um, you know, how you collaborate, uh, the sorts of work that you choose to do or don't choose to do, um, and anything else in relation to just how you how you organize yourselves as artists. So I'll I'll put it out to all of you and just go ahead and speak if you have something to say. This is a kind of personal answer, which I don't think you can extrapolate a lot from it, but. I just, when I started being a theater artist, I was not political at all. And I think it has something to do with being trained mostly by Russians who had lived under the communist regime and kind of an ethos that they had that kind of political ideas were like bad ideas the state would make you have in your theater. So I had to kind of get like free of those teachers to kind of consider political content. Um, and, uh, I, I was actually like, it took me a long time for the for the penny to drop, like longer than it should, because for a long time, my rent job while I was being this artist was doing all sorts of activist things and working for political parties and knocking on doors and doing like activist work, but then like going to the theater and like remounting Eugene Onegin. And it's like, there was a gap. And, um, and then I had a really awesome experience with an organization called Department of Culture which was uh, essentially like artists across Canada that came together in the 2008 federal election, which was largely, not largely, but one of the major issues of that election was that Harper wanted to cut the arts. And there's a kind of famous quote from that election that ordinary Canadians don't care about the arts. And so Canadians came, Canadian artists kind of came together to form their own department of culture because Harper didn't want one. Uh, and, um, we use the internet so effectively to organize and put on like the same play in like seven cities across Canada at the same time, or like have hashtags that were national hashtags that everyone could use so they would trend nationally. And um, we had a lot of different artists that were involved in that movement. And I kind of came just out of that in 2008. And I was just like, oh, this is so much more exciting and so much more vibrant. And like the when people were in the rooms to see those things, they weren't just there like to entertain, but also like to, to attend and be part of activism and be also be part of resistance. There's like multiple kind of reasons for people to attend those Department of Culture events. I just couldn't go back. And so actually without like, I never said like from now on, but actually since 2008, I really haven't done a show that doesn't have some 
activist content and some internet connection because it just got a lot better when I started doing that. End of thought. That's great. Would anyone else like to jump in? Because there's a lot of smart people know about political science here, I feel like I should have one other thing, which is to say, in terms of that election, the Anglophone artists did not really impact the election. It was all Francophone artists. Uh, because in the minds of uh, Quebecers, culture is a different question. It's about identity. And so ordinary Canadians don't care about the arts in Quebec means like we don't care about French speaking people, uh, like it's like short form for that. And so they that there's lots of polling um, that shows it like that really hurt the conservatives in Quebec. But but just say it was awesome for me and my art in English Canada, but I don't think we actually impacted the election, just to be clear. <laughs> I was gonna kind of uh, respond to Michael, but also switching gears from this question. So feel free to like not respond and continue with this particular question. Um, but just as Michael was speaking, I was thinking about how for a really long time, I thought that the people who like were going to see activist shows were folks who were actively activists. Like usually when you're like all in this space and it's great and everyone feels good. Um, and so for a long time, I was wondering like, how do you get the people who don't have similar mindsets as you into these spaces, because it's like, if we want this change to happen, aren't they the people who need to be seeing this content? Um, and then I thought a little bit about Cliff Cardinal's piece. As you like it, I don't know, the, the Shakespeare one. <laughs> um, and it's like, and the, the ability there to lure, to lure folks into a space and then talk about something they weren't necessarily expecting but even with that one I, I wonder how much of a I wonder about the audience reaction and then how long it lasts because I think that you can be confronted with an idea and be like oh I'm gonna do this thing tomorrow like maybe I should change this and then it did a death but like how long do we or do we as audience members who aren't already immersed in this particular world how long do we actually stay doing the work you know and I think that that's a question that I have, because how do we how do we get people to care about people because we're just people <laughs> rather than like um, having to like I don't know I, I I'm just wondering about how long how long can the impact be had like post like the moment of the show you know and like and then like how much of it is, is just performative. You know, I think that like, if after the show they go and donate, great, fantastic. You know, the people who need the money have gotten the money, but then my question, my question here is just what happens after? And that doesn't need to be answered because I think that there's so much there, um, but end of thought for now. Oh. Claire, you can go ahead. Um, Kemi, I, I think that I, I think about that all the time. And I think that's that you um, brought that up in such a beautiful way. S something that I, when I really started to, to think about, you know, like what, what impact does arts have in a long-term way, I started to get really obsessed with comedy because 
in my experience, comedy is is a huge disarmer. Like comedy allows for allows for people to feel feel safe and open and bonded in a way that few other things do. And I think about like um, I I almost every day think about the the um, stand up special on Netflix, Nanette, um, where where she she deconstructs what is problematic about how jokes specifically stand-up jokes are for anybody who's making fun of themselves when they're in an oppressed when they're in an oppressed body and so i think like it's one of the one of the wonderings i have is is how like how do we get people into a safe space to like actually engage with ideas that are really challenging and allow for change and then how yeah then how do we have those ideas last and it's true i don't i don't know how many people who saw cliff cardinal's show left and were changed but i know like i know i took my dad to see it who's like a you know a 70 year old um white man and and he i mean he was starting from a place of like a certain amount of of knowledge on on subjects but i think the way that that like catapulted the way that i saw him like catapult in those thoughts was really big and i and i think that like it's not always going to be a change a, ch an, a change that's huge but i i'm interested in like how do we if we have enough things that tip the scale enough then is there enough change and i don't know if that's the answer i don't know if that's how it is but um i just wanted to add add sort of those thoughts about comedy and and a slow progression of change that i've been thinking about a lot Ooh, can i jump in now yes Okay, cool. Um, because yes, 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 to both what Kemi and Darwin are, are questioning and, and, and offering. Um, I think there's some words that have come to mind. Appreciation. I love the word appreciation just because you can appreciate something, but then there's a growth of that appreciation. And so I think there is a sense of the long term. So yes, I agree. Perhaps one show won't change you, but if it if the if the water you're swimming in if the if the life you're living in has a multiplicity of art forms and a multiplicity of of offerings within your lifetime that continue to change you a little bit at a time i think it's not for me it's more like water on the stone than it is like cutting something in half you know it's like it's going to slowly reshape our society and and i think we've seen that again and again throughout the trajectory of of people on planet earth like how arts do in the long term really shift and change how we're perceiving um, these constructs that we've made that are not that are act just that constructs and that, that, that they can change. Also, Nikki Shafula, if anyone wants to talk to me about Nikki, abolitionist, incredible theater maker, wonderful. Uh, she trains people in, in a lot of this work and just a genius, amazing, amazing human. Listening to this makes me wonder like how much these works also um, like confirm for people that shifts are happening in society. So like Me Too happens as a, a cultural phenomenon within society. And then if we see that next year, there's four plays programmed with like Me Too themes, we start to understand like, oh, we're accepting that this is a new narrative that we need to understand that's going on. And so it doesn't necessarily have to change people's mind. It can also kind of provide proof of a shift in values or narrative. End of thought. Yeah, that's great. Um, well, we are 
almost at the hour. So I just wondered if any of you would like to say anything else before we uh, turn to questions. Uh, I feel so nerd. I feel like like such the, the the classic PhD student on the panel where I'm like, here's a great book. Here's another great book. Here's a, such a good book. Um, but there's another book that was very foundational in some of my thinking about the these questions, which is Nick Estes. Um, he's an indigenous activist and scholar in the States. Uh, again, uh, I, I learned I got this book through my cultural studies. Um, uh, coursework, but the book is called Our History is the Future. And there's a definition about uh, de of decolonization and and um, that I like to apply to abolition and, and other kinds of anti-colonial uh, uh, conversations, which is Nick Estes talks about decolonization as needing to happen in three steps, at least three steps. The first being recognition, um, the second being destruction, and the third being recreation. So one of the things that's so interesting to me in these panels is I really struggle against, so I really struggle with um, moving past recognition. I really struggle, I really want my work and the work that I'm engaging to like take noble steps towards uh, destruction and recreation too. Um, because I think that, that largely um, recognition politics are important, but it also stops us, stops us somewhere. Like we recognize, you know, I went, I listened to this panel from American abolitionist uh, art creators once, and they talked about the work that they were doing as, putting, oops, sorry, putting a face on, on um, incarcerated people. And I was like, yo, they already have faces definitely right and it's the same kind of conversation about like humanizing people i'm i'm less i'm i'm really interested in interrogating why people don't think other people are humans to begin with more than i'm interested in interrogating like the hu humanizing element of it but it's so hard i think it's really hard for for artists who who you know work in representational mediums to move move steps beyond recognition move into the abolition move into the de deconstruction like you know even the process of she spread speaks to deconstruction to me because y'all aren't there's no director you're co-creating it took 10 years you're deconstructing you're destroying our idea of like write a grant do a show make the box office what's happening in the you know like how the piece that you're making that's that's recreating something so i'm really interested in thinking about these three three steps as i as i continue to do abolitionist continue to do decolonizing work is understanding recognition and then also trying to chart how to get get through destruction and into recreation which may mean like moving out of the way in some cases for, for me as well I would love to respond to one or just like two last little things in my body that are coming up. I'm guessing there's some youngsters listening here. Maybe anyway, if there's youngsters, like just it, I, I really truly believe in the change. I think it is changing. It's changed hugely in my life. I think I might be the oldest panelist on the, yeah, I think so probably. Anyway, it's changed a lot in the last, you know, I started making theater in, in um, 1996, I think it was, and it's changed a lot and it can keep, it can keep changing. I think one of the things I continue and just to go off what Mo said is that I, I continue to face is the fear of death. And when I say that, I mean it metaphorically, I don't mean like I'm afraid someone's gonna, thank goodness, kill me in this, in this, in this country um, making art. But I do fear that that fear of death of like, this is a way that I know it might be abusive. It might be mis, uh, misaligned. It might be feeding a system I don't want to feed, but I know it, you know, and how do we face that fear, knowing that if we face that fear, we can come out on the other side with a whole new society, a whole new way of doing things, a whole new way of being in our bodies and in the world with each other. And that that is way more important for me than my personal 
fear. And, and I just, I propose that as we die, cause it's hard work and you have to again and again and again, fail and come back and have humility and have courage and have vision, vision amidst the, the muck and all of it. Yeah. Well, I think those are, those are some really beautiful words uh, to pause upon. So why don't we uh, turn to, uh, to the audience and we'll stop asking the questions that Zoe and I put together and, and allow you to ask some questions. Uh, so feel free to just uh, go ahead and speak uh, or you can can use the hand icon uh, or put, put your questions in the chat. Actually, just while we're waiting for questions, I wondered if, if someone from She Spreads can tell us a little bit about how we can all watch this show. Go for it, Claire. Oh no, I think because oh. it depends. On, for you, do the Queen's thing. I'll find the chat, and then I'll make my little addendum to the to the link. Just you go for it. Great. So she spreads will be available online from February twenty third to the twenty seventh um, through downstage.ca or shespreads.com, um, and it is a pay what you can afford um, ticketing system. Uh, ranging from $5 to $16 with, with fees attached. And I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, Darwin and Claire, that you have 24 hours to watch it once you purchase the ticket. No, that's not true. Tell me, Claire, what's the deal? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay, so yes, $5. If $5 is not feasible for you, and I'll put her name in the chat too, you can email Danielle at downstage.ca and get a pay forward ticket. We have a whole program where, where folks pay for other folks' tickets. So that's also an option. Um, so once so once you get your ticket, you have you can watch it as many times as you want until the 27th at midnight. So you've got, let's say you buy it on the 23rd, you have that whole time. You can watch it, you can share it with friends. We don't care. Do do what you will with that link for that uh, for those days. And then it'll be it'll just be taken down. And I put the I put the link to the page in the the downstage part of the page anyway in the chat in the chat and I'll put Danielle's name in the chat too. Yeah, Tony. Sorry, I'm having troubles with my controls here. Um, thanks so much for this awesome panel. It was just incredibly um, inspiring to listen to all of you talk about uh, theater and activism. I was particularly, I think, um, you know, some of what uh, Kemi and Mo was saying, I think, you know, really resonated. I'm, I'm not in theater. I am an activist. Um, and so as such, I'm, I'm curious about the intersection and I'm curious specifically around the things, Mo, that you were talking about, about, you know, how do we actually decolonize without giving the land back? You know, like, I think that's really an important question. I think you called it an extreme question, but I think it's actually the real question. Um, and I think, you know, to, I also, you know, was really um, feel curious, I guess, about these um, questions about, you know, how about, about how do we educate people? You know, how do we bring their awareness to things, but go further than that? I'm an educator as well. Um, and um, so I'm curious actually about like if anybody has done 
theater acts as activism instead of theater and activism? You know, is there anybody, you know, on this panel maybe or on this call that has experience in doing direct action that incorporates theater? Thank you. End of thought. <laughs> Yeah, I can speak to this. Thanks, Tony. Nice to meet. Nice to meet you. Um, I'm going to put my email in the chat also because I would love to talk to anybody who wants to keep these kinds of conversations going. Um, one one example. I worked on a piece once. Um, at, it was at the Grad Club, and I worked with Tracy Guptill, who is also a PhD student in cultural studies. Kay Kenny, who's a dancer in town. Um, Liam Bidmead, and we we worked on the show about the Grad Club and you know, the piece was like a site-specific piece about activism. Like, there was an activist in the piece and she was young and she was frustrated about how she could how she could do something more. And one of the ways that we were interested in kind of decolonizing the, the structure of that show is everybody knows, uh, you know, it's, it's a practice right now to have land acknowledgements at the beginning of the piece. You do your land acknowledgement and then the land acknowledgement is done and then you move on with Hamlet. And we were really interested in like, finding a different practice for the, for the, for that kind of um, honoring of, of the land. Um, so Tracy Guptill, brilliant writer, brilliant thinker, brilliant activist wrote like, I don't know, like a, a 10 page history of the land that the grad club was on. And this monologue went all the, all the way through the piece. It would, it, it would interrupt the piece. It would like kind of go against the piece. Um, and at the end of the play, we uh, sent around a hat and we said, you know, that this was at the time when um, Tyndanaga uh, folks were holding up the railway. And we said, okay, we're gonna pass around this hat and we're gonna just e-transfer what we make every show um, to, to, to the, the activists that are at Tyndanaga. And because it was at the end and because this, this conversation about land went all the way through the piece, we ended up making like $700 by the end. I think we sent a donation for like 640 bucks, which for like a, a, a DIY theater production, I think, you know, ask making that a point of the end of the show. Like we actually didn't make as much of a deal about the applause at the end. We're going to take that moment away. And instead of having a moment of like, yay, we bow, we're going to take this time to say, okay, folks in the audience, if you have the extra finances, here it is. If you want to, if you want to continue to have these conversations about land and decolonization, let, let's do that together. And I think that was like a really small way that was really effective to use theater to, to, to you know, to have those kind of conversations and that, that Claire and Darwin and we were all talking about here, have that space for productive conversation, but then also like donate money at the end. And it worked. It really worked. It was really the only time we'd ever done that. And as a site-specific company, uh, I realized that I had a real troubling practice with, with land acknowledgement, making work in out in the world and had a really bad practice of that. So this was a one one of those kinds of activities. So many more I can imagine. Thanks, Mo. I was actually at that show. And um, to me, that's such a great example of the integration of the activist intent and the nature of the art, because that was such an immersive show. You had the audience right in the show. You know, we were sitting at the table surrounded by the artists. And so I think that the ways in which you approached the land acknowledgement was, it was especially effective because we felt so much more a part of what you were doing. So that, that was fantastic. Um, would anyone else like to uh, respond to what Mo said uh, or to Tony's question? Or are there any other questions? I have a thought about Tony's question, which is I was really thinking hard about it. I, I, I don't think that I distinguish between 
activist art and art about activism, like as a practice that kind of like the impulse to do something that has a political or socio kind of political perspective or objective to it can will kind of manifest in lots of different ways and like whether or not is like part of like let's call direct action isn't kind of connected to whether it's effective or not for me anyhow um and i guess like just to pull this out as theoretical and talk about a specific example one show that we tried to do we tried to emulate a piece of theater that was in the style of um the of living newspaper which is a very specific aesthetic associated with um, political performances that happened um, in the early depression, kind of the only time the US federal government ever funded not-for-profit political theater uh, through through the like the funding of these living newspapers that go on like in the Lower East Side and like everyone would do, uh, like they do a play about like how tenement houses burn down. And then at the end of it, for it to be um, a living newspaper, um, then you have to uh, have a debate with the audience and the performers about like what should be done to solve this social issue that we have now uh, performed for you. And my sense is that audiences in 2020 don't want to, they don't really want that anymore. That's not going to convince them like that it's too didactic and that like we have to be, we have to come at them from the different ways, I guess the way the internet comes at us from seven different ways now and makes decisions for us. But, but that, um, but that for it to be in activism doesn't make it more activist, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. I had, I guess, when I when I heard Tony's question, the the piece that really jumped to mind for me was this piece we did as part of ArcFest, which no longer exists, but it's in Toronto and uh, it was happening in Parkdale. And we did a piece called One Block in Parkdale, where we worked with the Parkdale Public Library and the city as well to um, have a half an hour piece that had four performance art areas throughout the one block in Parkdale. Um, and it was it was definitely, we lied to people. So some people knew they were coming to see a show because they they'd found out through the arts community or whatever. And then I would say the majority, and I know that because I was, I was Brandy. I was Brandy and I was standing in front of the library and I was we were offering free tours um, courtesy of the library and they knew we were doing this. We were gonna lie to people and we were taking you on a tour of, of, of Parkdale and I had a whole script that was all about these different historical parts of Parkdale. But what we were really looking at was the gen gentrification of Parkdale and how people were being displaced in inordinate amounts. And so the four performance art pieces got more and more obviously performance art. The first one you kind of thought, think you're just seeing a woman have a crisis on the street, you continue on. And they were all really well researched and really honoring the folks that were suffering. Um, and some, some of the people in the piece also had lived experiences of being displaced in Parkdale. And by the end of it, people were just like, you could feel that they were, had, I mean, I think there's only two or three in all the all the tours we did over over the week that left. People stayed even though they realized, oh, I've been lied to and this is not actually what's happening. But by the end of it, you could really feel um, a lot of questions, a lot of there was cr a lot of crying because there were people that, you know, that were in that those groups of audience members who were actively displacing the, the folks that we were talking about in the piece. Thanks, Claire. Uh, Nikki, I see you have your hand up there. Yeah, uh, so I was wondering if um, Kemi and um, or any of the other speakers would want to talk a little bit about this idea of decolonization is not a return and elaborate on that a bit. Yeah, for sure. 
Um, I think that we see that decolonization is not about a return because we can't possibly go back to a time before decolonization. And I think especially right now, we see decolonization is often spoken as like rectifying, but it's not something that can be fixed in a way. Like we need to recognize um, like the traumas and the pains that have been inflicted on how we have come to that today. Um, yeah, so then I think really about like changing our mindsets to have decolonization as a process that is informed by, especially by folks who have been colonized. Um, yeah, <laughs> end of that. Does that does that help? Yeah, that's great. Thank you so much. Okay. Uh, any final questions? I'm so serious. Any final questions? Any further questions? I should say, uh, Lilith. Yeah. Hi there. Um, I feel so nervous to <laughs> speak. You guys were all so totally brilliant. I just feel like so lucky to have uh, had the chair. But um. Lilith, I don't know if you can hear me, but we can't really hear you. Um, I wonder, do you want to try turning off your camera or, or writing your question in the chat? Oh, I think, I think we lost Lilith. Um, I, I did get lost. Oh, no. there she is. <laughs> I'm back with no video. If I <laughs> and if this doesn't work, I'll try the chat. Um, my own background is more from um, the experiential and transformative education um, side of things and specifically looking at, um, at place-based education. And so, um, yeah, I guess my question, like the arc, it, temporally, the arc is so much different and longer when you're looking at most educational experiences. And I got so curious in, about the mentions about care work and ongoing care, um, of course, of the performance, but also the audience members. And I'm curious to know more, you know, if if a simplified arc of, of one's transformation, let's say an audience member is something where there's a, you know, a disruptive experience and maybe it's even supported by a safe space or a cohort sort of a experience during the performance. Um, and then maybe coach for that think about as 
Lilith, so sorry, we've lost you again. Um, but does anybody want to respond to maybe the first part of Lilith's statement or question about care and the audience? I think Mariah has to answer this question. I feel like Mariah's brought this up with me like 12 times. <laughs> well, it's because Kemi and I have talked about this 15 times. Um, the one thing I was going to offer is, you know, I think like care obviously is an ongoing practice. I think Lilith, you're on the money. If we had longer time for a longer arc, of, I think of, of course that would, that would change uh, how we can care about our audiences. But I guess the one thing I wanted to offer into this space about care is um, something that I learned from another artist I met through Spiderweb Show, which is uh, J.D. Derbyshire. And uh, JD is a fantastic artist who thinks a lot about um, care and access, in my opinion. And one of the things that JD talks about is they say um, a one size fits one in these models, right? And I think that that's like so important to remember um, when you're thinking about the care perspective moving into making work. Um, I think I've seen a lot of pieces, even uh, you know, pieces that aim to be. Um, activist in their intent, assume a kind of homogeneity of their audience and really hurt people. Shows that are supposed to be about changing the world, shows that are supposed to be about changing our minds, but assuming a kind of homogeneity about the room that they're speaking to, that kind of content can be hard to hear and hard to listen to and, and like can re-traumatize in, in a case, right? I, I think about shows like, you know, shows about, uh, you know, we, we all know what trigger warnings, how trigger warnings need to be, need to be held. But I think this kind of like blanketed assumption of what people need to be cared for is one of the things that is like theater artists are like really trying to resist against. I'll speak really quickly to a show that I worked on with Michael and Zoe, which is a show called Behavior. And this piece, um, really hard material uh, kind of interspersed through the piece, um, a lot of assault, a lot of uh, conversations about sex. And um, I spoke to someone once, we, we ended up doing the piece in a theater, but we also live streamed one of the performances. And I spoke to someone who said, I would not have seen that show unless I could have done it through a live stream. Because then if this person felt not safe in the room, she could just close her laptop and walk to her living room. And she said she would not have seen that show unless there was this alternate mode of delivery that cared for her. No matter how many trigger warnings were there, she wouldn't have been cared for in that room because like very awkward to get up and leave a theater and, you know, like, excuse me, excuse me, you have to go. That's very uncomfortable. But this like shift to like, what if we live streamed it? Oh, that's a very caring way to extend this piece that's like really, really meaningful um, in a safe way to other kinds of people. So I think it's this like one size fits one model, which is like, obviously doesn't go alongside well with like how we understand arts and capitalism, but I think is really important with uh, care work in general. And the book is so good. Everyone should read the care work book. It's so beautiful. It's such a great read. Uh, I just want to jump on that to say that uh, Mo finished with the point that I was going to make about one size fits one, which is like, it's, it's an intensely anti-capitalist idea. Like the only way you make any money off art is figuring out how to kind of iterate the same thing over and over again to a point where like you can start to make a profit. And if you commit to one size fits one, you're kind of like thrown away the idea of a profit uh, and put ethics uh, and an individual experience first. And so I appreciate that guidance in art making. I also just want to bring up with this particular show, which Mo was talking about behavior, it 
it really occurred to me, I suppose, embarrassingly, maybe for the first time, but how, um, how um, oppressive a theater can be for an audience goer and how as soon as you enter a space like that, we assume a whole bunch of rules um, and modes of being that don't necessarily have to be there. I remember there was even a conversation and a debate about, about allowing people to access the washroom during the show and how even that simple act could make someone feel safer in a space. And so can we start to obliterate those rules that go with being in a theater that, that make people feel unsafe? Is it Daron? Did you have a question? Yeah, um, I'm the coordinator for Snated. I should be helping you, you know, making things more complicated. But uh, as you were all talking, I was thinking about uh, something not necessarily related to my work, but something that has to be a lot in the way in which intellectually I engage with, uh, with academia. And that comes from uh, sort of my area in the war. Uh, and connected to in Latin America, definitely, I don't think I'm exaggerating what I said that most of the revolution happened through uh, artistic uh, movements, like artistic revolution, and like the term like art artivism is the is a term that uh, um, people use the most there. Um, and how important those those movements were to uh, to change those places. And I'm thinking like all over from like Chile in Biltojara. Um, to what was recently happening in Cuba. Um, and even like during the 80s and 90s, the Latin American boom of, of, uh, of writing, it was all about imagining the world differently. Um, the difference that I see uh, with that moment, what I think uh, for what you're trying to, to convey here is happening in Canada, is the way in which uh, in Latin America, particularly those forms of art become became the predominant ways of art. Mm -hmm. um, and with that society overall was imagining a new society, right? Uh, so I think my question is in, in, in Canada right now, um, the kind of art, this kind of theater uh, that you are engaging with, that you are doing, uh, what, is, what is his place in, in, um, in social like entertaining based Culture, right? In social, like entertaining base, uh, I don't want to say meaningless uh, uh, entertaining, it's not meaningless at, at any point, but like in social, like entertaining base um, uh, culture, what is the role of the stuff you do? Uh, because I, I agree with, with all that you have been saying about the, the importance of what you do. How do people engage with what you do? What role do you play in social, like marketized, commercialized? Um, uh, a scene that we're living. I've answered so much, so I'm say something really briefly, just to say that, like, I think what we've talked about largely is not-for-profit arts, which like don't really connect to um, like mass um, communication and entertainment, and and. Um, I would just add to it that I'm, it's one of the reasons why I'm interested in VR because it's an entirely different possibility of subset to view live performance. Um, like Oculus, the evil Facebook company has sold 3 million headsets to people this year. So all of a sudden there's 3 million people that like experience that that are totally different than the cohort of people that would buy a ticket to Stratford or Shaw. 
And so that's actually one of the most interesting things about it to me is a way to kind of become a broader medium. And just to say, I guess at the end of that, you know, I, I started by saying I was trained by Russians. And one of the reasons that was so inspiring to me is because in Russia, theater was that thing. It was the medium that they used to reimagine what their society would be. And so uh, the medium has more potence in that country than it does in ours, frankly, because of that. And so it's part, it's part of it, I guess, historical legacy of how important has theater or, you know, we're talking about theater today been in a society. And, you know, I think we'd be honest with ourselves that in Canada, not, not that important yet. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I don't know how, how, I think exactly what Michael was saying, where it's like the theater on like large, like social scale, I don't think that it truly does much because there's a lot of like barriers within like access or barriers within like what theater is or how the society understands what theater is um and like that within itself is already like it's for a particular type of people i'm not going to go um and i don't think that i'm really going to answer your question but i do want to say that like about my particular work um i I like I I try to like I reach the people that I can, you know, and it's often people who are like like <laughs> the first person is going to go is probably a friend of a friend, and like the impact that I have in my circle or like my space, the people that I can actually reach, um, I think is where my where a lot of like like my activism or like these conversations or even just like mindset changing comes from, but. Like, I think that's such a fair question because I don't know. I, I, th I think I hope there's like a ripple effect after it's like, I will connect to my people and then they will connect and go further and go further. But it's like, even with the waters, like the, the ripple and the effect is so much smaller, the farther out it goes. So yeah, like what I do is I will, I will be with my people and I can probably do about this much, but then yeah, like what are we meant to do about everything and everyone else? I don't know. It's a big question. Thank you for offering it. Thank you, thank you. Okay, well, am I right, uh, Carolyn and Aicha, that we're at our time here? All right, well, to me, this is this is a really actually lovely place to end. So um, I just wanna say thank you so much to, uh, to Dairon and Carolyn and Aicha for hosting us um, and also to Zoe for, for putting this panel together. Uh, Zoe, did you wanna say anything to close us off? Oh, just thank you. <laughs> thank you all so much to those who came and listened, to those who will listen in the future and to those who joined us. Thank you. And of course, thank you so much to, to the panelists. I've, I've learned so much. I'm, yeah, it's been a, a wonderful afternoon. Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples and brought to you by the generous support of the Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science.